today. Yep. China, how exciting. What a place. Well, you've been a little more than I have, and I'm ready to go back and cover so much more of it. So why don't you start with what you've done there? So I've, I guess, had a bit of a taste of China. Um, A a couple of trips, a a couple of times for work, like in and out of Shanghai, which was, I mean, that is an astonishing city. There's so much going on there and, you know, an incredible amount of history and um, really unexpected things like, you know, you walk along the Bund there along the river and there's those grand old buildings and then not far away is an old French quarter and like it just stuff there that really kind of shifts the way you think about China. Is it still a mystery for a lot of people, China, before you actually travel there? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's always been a kind of mysterious place that's kind of hidden itself behind layers of, of, I don't know, just behind layers. And um, it's certainly revealing itself more these days, but um, it's still quite... um, Unique and mysterious in a number of ways and, and can be quite challenging to get around, but um, much more open than it ever has been before. Um, but beyond Shanghai, I've been to um, been to Beijing, to Xi'an, which is, um, as you know, the place where you venture out from to see the terracotta uh, warriors, the terracotta army, and a, a small um, city called Suzhou, which has canals and waterways, which is, you know, a bit, positions itself as the Venice of, uh, of China. So when you were there, Ben, what, mm. what, what is your sense of it? Because my, my trip was mainly about food, which I'll talk about in a minute, and do we not love Chinese food to yep. the ends of our lives? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. you're, as a traveller, and if you were, you were telling somebody about it so that they wanted to go, what would you be saying? What are the elements of China that, that affected you? Oh, for me, I think, it, and even though I travelled to many parts of Asia, it still, it felt even more foreign again. It felt more complicated and convoluted and, um, and just, and just layer upon layer upon layer of difference. Um, the food is astonishing. The, as you tap into that kind of history through the centuries and the millennia, your brain kind of explodes at what has been going on in this place for all those thousands of years. Because and there's so much beauty in there, isn't there? If you just think of the arts and their culture. Oh, all that stuff in there. And their gardening. The, all the, you know, everything that they've created and made and traded for thousands of years um, is is astonishing. And those gardens are incredible, absolutely but, incredible. And, and the, the costumes, the fabrics, the colours that go with China, um, so the more you go into it, the more you must discover and the more you must absolutely love it. They've got food nailed, haven't they? They <laughs> sure do. Um, Food's incredible over there. So, mm. so I've, I was experiencing Szechuan food and Cantonese food. The Szechuan for me is just it's, it's, a, it's very saucy and there's unusual things that you can get. I, I chose not to go for the duck tongue. Mm-hmm. I thought I might let that go. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's probably uh, a great uh, delicacy, Julia. It, it, it is a great delicacy. Yeah. And I felt more for the duck than I did for me. That's why I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a lot of sauces with the Szechuan and they're ve- a, a lot of very exotic dishes. But when you get down to the basic foods that you get on the street, it's absolutely delicious yeah. and amazing. And their sauces and the way they cook it and it's so fresh and a combination of tastes. And the Cantonese, which we all know, which are the – 
the noodles and the rices and the, the you know, everything delicious that comes from the wok. Mm. Um, I would go to China just for the food, I have to say. And, and should it, people expect it to be like what they get from their local No, takeout? no, they, sh- they <laughs> should. Cl- close to their Chinese restaurants, their Chinatown restaurants, but so much more extreme mm. because they – they, are, they deliver the whole animal to a great extent. Yeah, true. You know, I've also been in a place where I ordered a chicken a chicken stir fry that I thought was going to be exactly like home except that the chicken's head was there, yeah. intact. Probably just a garnish. Uh, yeah, well, they, 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 they were, there were d- delicate bits of that that they thought mm. that you should eat. Yeah, um, of course. And, and, of course, when you go to those street food places, you have to expect that. And so I asked very kindly for, for some napkins um, and she just brought out the toilet roll. And so, you know, you're yeah. in it, you're right in it and you have to love it and enjoy it and a lot of it was delicious, most of it was. The chicken head, mm, like the duck's tongue, I let that one that, go. somewhere else. But I don't know that there's too much Chinese food that you just don't love. No, and I've, I found their, um, I guess, the street food delicious. Yes. And, um, you know, you, you particularly in places like Shanghai, in, in any given street you look down the distance and you'll see, a big, you know, column of steam rising up from yeah. a tower of dumpling steamers, and I get pretty excited by that. The that, dumplings that gets me going. Yeah. Yes, at, at all that, all those small pieces. I don't there. even care what's in those things. I just no. point and say, no, no. I yeah. guess if you get the duck's mm. tongue, you're never going to know. <laughs> yeah, because you're not going to see it. Yeah. But now you know the other thing about China, which we don't know so much about, is they make a lot of wine. Right. They've got yeah. That is a surprise. I mean, they produce some very good beer as well, and that you know comes from uh, you know some of that comes from the influence of German communities and European communities in China over centuries as well. So, really fascinating layering of cultures within that. I don't mean to bring it up again, though, Ben. But Mm. noodles, yeah, came from Italy. We all know that. (laughs) Marco Polo. Took, took the spaghetti a over. Yes, pallet of noodles to China, did he? Yeah, and know. they th- they said, "Oh, we can do with stuff with this." <laughs> I have to, might have to fact check that one. <laughs> we'll so you're, I'm dying to go back because I've yeah. only seen such a very small part of it. But when you talk to people about who've seriously travelled China and gone deep into it, like the 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 warriors and the wall, etc., and the 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 palaces, you you just must you you can say how much you would like to go back. I'm desperate I to would, go. I would. And, and, you know, one of my fondest travel experiences was in um, Xi'an, which has a, a wall around the city, a, you know, it's more or less a square, and you can ride bicycles along the top of that wall. And oh, that's, a, that's a, it's a great way to kind of peer down into the old parts of the city. And I got to a corner of that wall and kind of pulled over and peered down and I could see there was a produce market down there and there was a, a guy doing something in, interesting looking with a like a, a a a stone wheel kind of grinding something, and I went down there and he was grinding sesame seeds into sesame oil. So there you go. See? I bought a little bottle of sesame oil from him and brought it home, and that was, you know, little experiences like that. I think the interesting can be fabulous. Well, that and and mm. you know, with travel these days, one of the really big things that everybody wants to do is to get right into the local community, yeah. meet the local people, and be part of the local customs. I think China probably would avail that for you, wouldn't it? Uh, in so many different well, ways. And I, I think because you're deeply into it when you're there. It's, yes, it's it's the but, real thing. But you can't ignore it. Mm. Um, a moment for you in China, Ben. Um, moment, couple of moments, and it's probably quite common for anyone who's seen the Great Wall is when you. I mean, it, it, 
when you're up close to the wall, it's amazing. But then when you gaze off into the distance in every direction and you can see little bits of the wall creeping up over a ridge line kilometres away and then disappearing again and re-emerging on another ridge, ah. just snaking off for forever in every direction. That's pretty amazing. And those terracotta warriors are absolutely mind-blowing, astonishing, to oh. a hauntingly kind of amazing. I bet you they change you as a person. I think they make you think about what other people have thought through history. Like why did someone do that? It kind of makes you get into the into the headspace of someone else through history. Like it's it's a pretty amazing experience. I have to tell you mine was food based though. Yeah. When we were taken into a little downstairs restaurant for breakfast, mm-hmm. which was where the locals all went, that you just learn that you can have noodles and soups and and things like dumplings for breakfast, and it's absolutely fine. Oh, absolutely fine yeah, for breakfast. You can move away from the wheat bix and the yeah. porridge and just yeah. have Chinese food yeah. for breakfast. That yeah. was my I, Don't you love a, a like an Asian buffet at a breakfast oh, in a hotel? Nothing better. Yeah. I had a good food experience. Again, in Xi'an, um, there's a, a Muslim quarter, and so the food in there is quite different. And I, I think it was breakfast and and we kind of, we were taken there and there was this ridiculously convoluted process to get this noodle dish. I think it was, you had to get a bowl and then someone had to put a peg on the bowl and then someone pick up your bowl and take it away. And some, and like, I just kind of threw my hands up and let, let, let the pegs <laughs> and everything do their thing. But it was just Different. It was not- noticeably different food, that particular dish in that city at that time. It was um, really Another yum. great place for us. China. China absolutely. Mm. In fact, and, and for all the listeners, I think it really must be a, a, a destination to be considered. Too many beautiful things to miss. No, and so easy to get to now. I mean, you can you don't just have to fly into Beijing or Shanghai. You can fly into Guangzhou and Wangzhou oh, and almost yes. every other city now. There are many, many direct flights out of um, out of almost every Australian capital into China. Um, High speed rail network to get around. Um, we you know would always recommend. Uh, perhaps using a small group tour operator to to make the most of your time there because traveling Absolutely can be the best way a bit of travel. a challenge. Yeah, yes, so super easy to get to, great value, and um, some of the the planet's big ticket items in terms of you know bucket lists and that kind of thing, and remarkable food. Good point because apparently the Great Wall of China is about the only thing that you can see um, from outer space. Well, I remember that when yes. I when I head up there. And next time we'll talk yeah. about shopping. Shopping. In China. There's no shortage of that. There's no shortage of absolutely mm. everything that you could possibly want, mm. including the things that you didn't know yeah. that you couldn't do without. Yeah. China's wonderful. Yeah. Well, now we've got something exciting ahead. We're about to welcome Stephen Scarfield to the show to talk to us about travel in China. Stephen is the travel editor of Seven West Media WA, West Australia, which includes the West Australian West Travel Club and two websites. And he's been all around the globe. There are so many destinations we could discuss with Stephen today, but we're going to talk about China. Stephen, thanks for uh, joining us on Taste Bud Traveller. Oh, it's very nice to be with you. It's such a huge country and very beautiful. How on earth do you make a decision which part of China you should go to if you haven't yet been and you want to go? There are so many entry points now as well. Yeah. So many. But, well, that's right. Land, I mean, right? 
That's right. But I think most of us, you know, are going to start with with the kind of iconic sites. Um, and, and there's ways of doing that which which take us just off the tourist path. So, you know, we're going to we're probably going to start with Beijing. We're going to we're going to want to see the Great Wall of China. We're going to want to see the terracotta army of Xi'an. Um, and we're going to want to go to the Forbidden City, you know, the Imperial Palace. And I think, you know, there are ways of doing all these things. Um, so, for example, it, the Great Wall, if, if you just take that as one example, because you've got 5,000 kilometres of the Great Wall of China, and I'm, I'm guessing that most people who go to China are going to want to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of really good sections within fairly close proximity to Beijing. Lots of people would go to Mutiano, which is about, you know, 70 kilometers from Beijing. Um, and, and that's great. It's, it's quite well restored, the big sections there. Um, but, you know, for my money, I think that Xinxiaoling uh, uh, is, is a really good section of war. So that's about two to three hours drive, depending on the traffic. But you, you've got sections there which are half restored and half wild. So uh, that's J-I-I-N-S-H-A-N-L-I-N-G. So people want to just jot that down. That's a really good part of the world waiting for because, you know, you can take a full day out there and you'll see part wall, wild wall and part restore wall as well. Um, If you want a totally exposed experience, then the wild wall, I'd head to Xiankao, which is just... Um, still only about three hours from Beijing, but you're in, you know, this incredible landscape with the old part of the wild wall. That says. You can do all this within, uh, within a, you know, driving within a day's drive of a uh, day's trip from Beijing. So look at different ways of doing things. And there are parts of what I've just said where you will not see Western tourists. So um, you can be very much removed from, uh, you know, normal sort of, travel and I think if even if you look at um, I mean you've got to go to the Forbidden Palace in Beijing I mean as visitors we just have to do this Um, and there's ways to do that I mean you can see there are 980 buildings there and most people will go through the six sort of main halls but just you know there's, there's less visited halls which are just brilliant so if I give you four examples you've got the Hall of Mental Cultivation it's fantastic. You've got the Palace of Compassion and Tranquility, the Hall of Literary Profundity, the Palace of Prolonged Happiness. Aren't they so wonderful got, titles? You see, we don't wonderful even... titles. You see, now that's what I'm saying is if you just take you because you know the palace. I mean, because the Chinese travel in China, you will you know, you'll find lots of crowds. You find lots of people if you take one step to the side, for example, to visit those four halls you'll have a much better experience. Hmm. They must be good for the soul, those four halls, just hearing their titles, their names, Stephen, must do it for you. Well, they are, you know, and and of course, I mean, this goes without saying, that there's this massive history of um, uh, spiritual, literary, um, creative thought in the history of China. Um, and probably for, for you know, young listeners um, who seek, China in such a contemporary way as a 
as a business power. You read about the relationship with the US. You read about, you know, Chinese entrepreneurially in Africa and so on. That's very much the contemporary story of China. But, of course, you know, you go back through these eras and you find just this extraordinary layers and layers of culture before the um, – uh, before the revolution, before you know, communism was there. You've just got uh, this endless mine of uh, thought there, of, of art and craft too. You know, if you just think of the Ming Dynasty and the exquisite china that that's the, right. the, the porcelain, in fact, that's that's come from that that beautiful blue and white that still is these days. You just want every piece of it whenever mm. you see it. And we, that's right, Stephen. Um, I'll back up a tiny bit. Uh, could, I'm just wondering if you could describe what it's like when you first lay eyes on the Great Wall of China and also on the Terracotta Army, and then also just give us uh, some ideas around if someone had more than say two weeks in China and had done some of those things, where else would they? Where else would be great to visit in China? Okay, well let's let's start with the Great Wall because um, I, th- I think. I was I was I'm always unprepared, and I've I've sort of been to different sections over many years. I'm sort of a bit underprepared for for the size of mm. the endeavour, you know, <laughs> um, because particularly when you get to, as I just mentioned, some of those wilder sections. Mutian yeah. um, is one thing, um, and you'll see lots of visitors there. So in a sense, it's it sort of feels like a prepared tourist destination. But as soon as you move down to other sections of the wall, you go, wow, you know, mm. it's just the enormity of it and the enormity and the and the, the demands of the landscape where you see this wall snaking away to the horizon following following ridges of, of you know mountain ranges um, you'll see it through forested areas you'll see it through rock areas once you start walking the wall uh, you can think well I'll do a day walk <laughs> it's really kind of hard on the knees because um, there's a lot of steps up and down the section and they're big and you're steps walking too aren't they they're big steps high yes, rises so. yes everything about it is just epic you know? mm-hmm. um, that's that's the kind of wall thing I think with the the terracotta army you know um, firstly to say that um, this uh, as they call it the terracotta army museum um, there's some new rules that came in uh, this year in 2019, which sort of limits the number of tickets. There's still a you know a lot of people going through, mm-hmm. 65,000 people. So, but but there is more necessity to get yourself a bit organised. Um, but these are the terracotta warriors of Xi'an. You know, this sort of very famous where uh, Emperor Qin, you know, was. Uh, buried with this version of an army to, to go into the afterlife with him. Um, you know, it's built 246 to 206 BC. Mm. Um, it took 720,000 people to build this. Mm. The, and, and the terracotta figures themselves are just extraordinary because there's different hairstyles, there's different clothing. Each one's very individual, is individual. Um, I guess most people, uh, you know, we can easily, we can conjure up this uh, photograph in our heads, you know, and that'll be pit one. So there's 2,000 warriors in pit one, and that's where most of these pictures are taken. So that's where you see the kind of uh, the, the big rows of these of these soldiers um, holding weapons. But I would say to people that, you know, and, and that will be busy. It'll always be busy. Mm. But that- pit two, 
Um, it's really, really interesting. It's um, I, I, I like to spend more time there. This was excavated in the 70s. And what I like about this is that it's got more kind of detail of the time, I suppose. You've got rows of kneeling archers, standing archers. You can see their weapons, see their bows. Um, you've got uh, a chariot array there. You've got the horses. So, you know, you've got – it's really kind of more informative. We talk about moments um, when we're talking about travel. What what would maybe be your moment with all the travel that you've done in China? Well, I think, you know, and Ben was, was sort of edging us towards that as well. Uh, the moments for me are, I guess, more intimate private moments. Um you know, the, the, an easy thing to do, say, from Shanghai, and, and the Bund in Shanghai is an experience, you know, just to walk along the Bund. But about three and a half hours from Shanghai on these high-speed trains, and China's just covered in high-speed trains, which is, you know, in many ways the, the best way to get around, I think. Flying internally, there's gazillions of planes, but it's... You know, I think that the high-speed trains are good. But about three and a half hours by high-speed train from Shanghai, you're in the Yellow Mountain. You know, this is Huangshan and uh, just, you know, really, uh, you feel very remote. So you can easily get out of, particularly Shanghai, to the Yellow Mountains and uh, have an extraordinary experience. And I've, and I've been there in winter, um, which was really uh, uh just spectacular you know I just I love being there and suddenly you think wow I, I feel like I'm I'm really in the outers here but I think then you know quite honestly um the Guilin the Lee River so this is this is the la this is the cast country the limestone cast mm -hmm. country and for me being on the Lee River around that landscape is just extraordinary you know so it's it's worth the trip it's probably it's either for someone who's going to do you know a longer trip do three or four weeks in china um that's when you'd go out to this cast country um or else it's a second trip and, it, and it's its own kind of thing i think that um being being in this sort of countryside where you'll find very little English, um, you'll find it certainly more demanding. And I do really think that some of these places, particularly um, Guilin and the the Lee River, this cast country, you're better off, quite honestly, in a, in a small group, you know, with knowledgeable guides who will explain the place and the history to you. I think that really helps. And and for a lot of people, they'll they'll just find it. There's no point spending a lot of your time just trying to get around and work out where you are. So for a lot of people, I think a, a, a small group tour will be really a nice way to do that. Yeah, I did a, a small group tour in China and that for me was probably the most beneficial thing was having someone help you get on the right train, off the train, into the transfer mm -hmm. bus and away you go. Yep. So yeah, it, it really is. You know, you can, I mean, we all like to be independent, but you're, you're, I think particularly with those small group tours in China, you'll find that you've got a lot of independent people together, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, so no, exactly. um, uh, it's very helpful because it can be really quite difficult. Be tricky, right? And mm. it can be tricky. And quite honestly, you can find yourself with not much help. Um, mm -hmm. You can find yourself – there are other issues with travelling in China. You know, for us, we're used to being on our 
on our devices and booking things. And you, you'll have to go through a VPN, um, you know, which is a kind of uh, an intermediate uh, site, I suppose you put this, mm. because there are so many sites you can't get to in China. Mm. So all the things that we'll be set up and used to using to get around may not work. Um, social media will be very restricted to us compared with what we're used to here. So firstly, uh, I really encourage people to note and set up a VPN before you go to China because you're just going to find that you'll get there and nothing works and you can't do your, you know, that, that won't help you in the way that you'll want it to help you when you're there. I'm going to move us on to something really important in China, uh, Chinese know. food. Yum. I, yes. know, I knew exactly where you were going. Oh, well, and you know, and for being of Italian heritage, Stephen, I do say the Chinese are very lucky that we took them pasta or spaghetti across so that they could get noodles, <laughs> you know? Amazing, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> lucky, them. <laughs> lucky them. Lucky <laughs> them. Lucky them. But Marco Polo headed over with a bunch of spaghetti. But um, food, please, Stephen, how wonderful it all is there. Yes. Well, it's interesting. I, I, you know, um, Fresh food, what cooked food um, is is just wonderful. I, I think um, for me, I love all the um, kind of well, things you mentioned noodles. You probably put in my mind now um, the noodles and soybean paste, fresh cooked, uh, is yeah. just fantastic. Uh, you know, you'll have these wide hand pulled sort of noodles, vegetable pieces, um, pork or not, depending on whether people are. A meat eaters or not, but that that just tossed up fresh is pretty special with um, with that soybean paste, um, shredded potato. You, you got me on all the veggies now. Do you have you tried the takaho pie, which is those little paper thin sort of snacks, like a little half moon? They're really popular in, Be- in Beijing, and I, they're like a little pancake. They're so cute. <laughs> love that. Uh, what else we love? Well, roast duck. You know, it's just the epitome of Beijing cuisine, isn't it? You know, um, and I think that, you know, most people, roast duck, shredded pork, Chinese dumplings, that's going to be the go-to. Stephen, I tell you, I didn't walk past a dumpling without eating it in China. No, that's understandable. I almost almost feel like putting that on a T-shirt for you. (laughs) Yes, but it's hard to walk past a dumpling when when you're in Australia even. True. Well, there we go again, Ben. Yeah, amazing. So I think we need um, to go. We do need to go. One thing we'll need to do, Julia, is put a lot of this information in the show notes. So absolutely, some of these destinations that Stephen has mentioned. Um, and while we're doing that, Stephen, can you um, just tell our listeners where they can find you if they want to track you down outside the Taste Bud Traveller? Yep, sure. We're, we're at thewest.com.au. Uh, there's a travel section there, forward slash travel. We're also at westtravelclub.com.au. And there's all sorts of other uh, opportunities up there to come to events sometimes or, you know, follow us on our photo training there, photographic training, and to travel with us. Uh, We would love to. Mm. And thank you enormously for talking to us. You just, you can actually bring a country alive, Stephen, which is what you've done for us with China this morning. I can't wait to get to the warriors, you know. Just being with those warriors would be just something else, wouldn't it? It, yeah. And it's, it's one of those moments, I actually remember gasping when I walked into that space and saw all of those faces looking back at me. It was yes. Yeah. Amazing. It's an epic sight, isn't it? Stephen, thank you. It's been our great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Stephen. My pleasure. Nice to chat. Thanks. Cheers. Yes.
Now, listeners, we have a very exciting guest for you today. We're very, very, very pleased to introduce Maggie Zhu, a foodie who runs the incredibly popular blog, The Omnivore's Cookbook, which is all about modern Chinese cooking. Maggie, you're currently based in New York. Thank you so very much for taking the time to have this interview with us. Therefore, so tell us more about yourself and The Omnivore's Cookbook. Uh, so right now, uh, this is uh, running Omnivore's Cookbook. is my full-time job. Uh, I cook I cook from home from my uh, apartment uh, located in Lower East Side in New York, and uh, yeah, that is that is all I do. Uh, basically, I develop recipes, uh, trying to bring authentic Chinese food to the uh, uh, to a global audience. So what I do is to uh, making a traditional Chinese cooking more approachable, using a more like a modern uh, method. Or and cookware that are, that are and ingredients that are available uh, for global audience, and I develop the recipes and cook them at home, and you know post them on my blog. So uh, Maggie, were you born and raised in Beijing? Yes. So I can imagine growing up, you would have eaten some um, absolutely delicious, um, authentic local Chinese food. Yeah. Now, most mm-hmm. of us, I'm sure Australians and perhaps Americans have an, an idea of what they think Chinese food is about. And that probably looks like noodles and stir fries and lots of sauces, but we know there's much more to it. And there's a, the spirit yeah. and essence of Chinese cuisine is quite, can be quite different to that. Can you paint a picture of what that, what that's like? So I would say that, uh, the description of the noodles, stir fries and sauces are only half true for example i feel like a a real uh like people every day like in china people eat really a lot of handmade food Mm -hmm. it is something that is missing uh, after i moved to the u.s i because in china there you know street vendors at small stores you can just so easily get a handmade noodles and dumplings and the bread and all that with a very uh, affordable price. And uh, they're just, you know, people wrapping dumplings every day. And that's something you can have for breakfast, for lunch. And uh, it can be very, very simple, you know, like not uh, those, you know, like uh, fried noodles loaded with, with chicken or vegetables that you see outside of China, but it's rather like very simple. It can be just a uh, boiled noodles but yeah. they're like really nice like handmade pulled noodles with a very simple sauce maybe just a drizzle of soy sauce and vinegar and some chili oil wow, uh, very that simple, sounds but delicious yeah um and uh, lots of vegetables uh that is um i think when you know you're talking about eating veggies uh in the u.s that kind of sounds a little bit boring mm-hmm. like it's always on the side of your plate like Oh, like let's get a salad for a side, just so we can have a, like a balanced meal. Mm. But I feel like in China, vegetable is such a, a staple. Uh, it's the main uh, on the table. Uh, you know, you can use uh, people use meat as a condiment. You mentioned the um, the the street vendors and the the street food, and um, a lot of that stuff to me, you know, when I've experienced it, has been really kind of about snacking like a little just a little thing yeah. you pick up on the way are the chinese great yeah. snackers is that a kind of yeah. great way of eating chinese food oh yes it's so uh everywhere uh, i mean nowadays like they're they become like stores you know there are less people actually this like van men you know having this cart uh, rolling yeah. everywhere to sell stuff but they are be- slowly become like more like small stores but still there's uh it's so easy to get 
uh, like dumplings, like fried dumplings, you can just go buy and some like nice. It, there's like meat pie thing,、mm-hmm. like a giant dumpling that、oh, is、yeah. fried, crispy, like a.、Uh, you just go get them for like a one dollar thing, and the you know snack on the way to, you know people eat that for breakfast on the way to the office. Yum. That sounds very good, doesn't yeah. it? Does that appeal to you,、yeah. Julia? It does. Eating those things for breakfast on <laughs>、yeah. the way to the office is much better than having a boiled egg in the car, Maggie. <laughs> yeah.、Uh, yeah. On the way to the office. Now,、um, what in China the the variation between dishes must be enormous from one province to the other. Can you tell us a little bit、right. about that?、Uh, yes. So、uh, I was born and grew up in Beijing. So.、Uh, For me, I really、uh, northern food is, you know, I, I grew up in, with northern food, which is、uh, more like、uh, the staples are more like noodles, dumplings,、uh, bread. Yeah, to a, you know,、uh, it can be、um, steamed bread or like flat bread, meat pie, all those kind of like everything,、uh, anything made with wheat flour. And, That's、uh, interesting. Yeah, food is rather like have pretty heavy seasoning. And there's a lot of preserved food and like sausage and stuff.、Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, if you go to、uh, southern part of China, as you know, like Sichuan or those like spicy food.、Yeah. So you, if you go to like inland south part of China, the food gets spicier.、Uh, people eat rice as a staple rather than those like noodles and dumplings. And、mm. uh, Uh, but if you go to the actually a rather coastal、uh, area of southern part,、uh, the food is m- very mild and sweeter, and、uh, people focus on、uh, you know create very fresh foods with seasonal ingredients that you can actually taste the food.、Mm. So it's very different. And if you go to the west part, which is、uh, out, this is it's rather、um, being、uh, neglected from Chinese cuisine usually. Is that the food is quite like Middle Eastern and Central Asian food?、Mm. Yeah, yep. So people eat naan and pilaf.、Uh, lamb is a, a staple,、uh, rather than like you know、uh, because because they're like Muslim country. Sure. So people eat lamb and beef and all that. Now, what what we like to do, Maggie, for our listeners is give everybody a simple recipe.、Um, That they can that that will enhance what you're talking about the the, the vitality、mm-hmm. and the authenticity of a particular country. So, is there something, some simple, delicious, wonderful recipe that you could give beyond the handmade noodles with a little、um, chili、right. and oil?、Yes. I do have this、um, Chinese eggplant with garlic sauce. It's by far the most popular recipe on my blog. It's a very simple. It's Chinese eggplant, pan fried until crispy, and cooked with a garlic sauce that has soy sauce. And it's just a, a little bit sweet, a little bit savory, but it, the whole thing is like simple.、Uh, it's just uh, um, I have friends make this dish. They're like they never liked eggplant before,、mm-hmm. and they love eggplant after making this dish. So it's just eggplant till it's frying it till it's crispy. With garlic、yes. sauce that I'm I'm guessing you buy garlic sauce in a bottle and 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 oh no you make、uh, it you yourself just, a, you make it yeah you make it with garlic and soy sauce and very simple right、uh, so you crush your garlic、time. up with soy sauce and it's very simple yum in fact I can imagine、mm. that is that's no, going to change people's love of eggplants what about what people are drinking Maggie ah、uh, lots of tea. 
Oh yeah. Oh, yes, lots yes, of tea. Of course. Uh, it's just like it's like a, you know when here people drink coffee throughout the day in China, it's like just always tea uh, during the day. And when you go out, hang out, a uh, beer is like uh, just the I think the most popular. It, but the beer in China is really light. Ah. I think it's complement with the spicy food very well. It's just like it has like a very mild taste, but when it's chilled, it, you know, like you can just spicy food pair with beer is like perfect. So, more tea than anything else makes oh, makes for great health. I think one of the popular thing is the uh, plum juice. Uh-huh. Oh, there you go. Sour plum juice, very tasty everywhere. Plum juice. So we should just order that when we go into a Chinese restaurant from now on. We'd like some plum juice. That, and, and yeah, that, I can try it. Yeah. We can give it a try. Maggie, thank you very much for joining us. Is there anything that you would thank like to you. say to our listeners before we let you go that's a, it's a, a pearl of Chinese food wisdom? Oh, if you want to make great Chinese food at home, just uh, visit my website. Ah, there you go. And where will we find yeah, you, Maggie? Tell us about that. Uh, uh, so you can find the many many great recipes on omnivorouscookbook.com and uh, I'm on all the social media so just type that in and you can find Maggie thank you we'll pop that in the show notes for sure yeah thank you so much Well, lucky people, today we have a real treat in store. We're going to be talking to Jeremy Oliver about Chinese wines. Now, you know, not that we always do that, but it's going to be very, very interesting uh, because Jeremy is a hugely successful wine critic. He's an author and he's a presenter. He's appeared on many wine clinic shortlists and was the first Western wine critic to write and publish a book in China for a Chinese audience. Now, that's a real coup. And that's just a small insight into his achievements. Jeremy, welcome to the show. We're so looking forward to talking to you. Thanks, guys. Looking forward to having a chat. We often hear about Australian wines being exported to China, but um, doing some um, research into this segment, I've I've learnt that the Chinese produce a huge amount of wine. Can you tell us a little bit about that in the contemporary wine scene in China? Yeah, sure. Um, China actually makes more wine than Australia. Wow. Uh, and that's growing at a furious rate. Uh, there's a, I mean, the, to give you an idea, the number of, the percentage of people in China who, you know, who drink alcohol but actually drink wine as part of their alcohol is lower than just about any other main wine drinking country mm-hmm. by a long way. Basically, what this means is that if, uh, if we got to the stage in China where the people who are drinking, the same proportion of the people who are drinking alcohol were drinking wine as pretty well the rest of the world, mm-hmm. there's not enough wine in the world to satisfy that demand. Gosh. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's, it's potentially enormous and uh, it's growing hugely. I mean, in China, um, China reinvents itself um, economically, um, business-wise, socially every two to three years. And so you're never quite sure what it's going to be like when you go there next time but one thing that has remained constant is the the growth of wine consumption and the wine industry itself in china if you look at a map of china it's all over the place so uh, a lot of it's concentrated around where people are there's a huge concentration around beijing um and a lot of these regions got planted simply because um there were huge numbers of people who needed something to do and it was land and it was cheap not particularly good grape growing areas is that what you're saying for sure 
at the very, very top, sharp, pointy end, there are really encouraging signs. So uh, Chang Yu have, uh, for example, which is one of the, say, the two biggest, have um, a, an operation in Ningxia, which is a cooperation with an Austrian winemaking consultant called Lens Moser. So it's called Shadow Cheng Yu Moser. And this is a very expensive wine. You know, we're talking, you know, two, three, four hundred dollars US a bottle. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and so at least the intent is there to try and uh, create something very expensive. And then if you go um, south and east, you end up in a beautiful, wealthy part of China called Yunnan, which and r- right in the remote parts of Yunnan, and you know we're talking six hours from what we'd call a town, um, and the roads are pretty ordinary, you end up uh, in this part called Shangri-La. And in Shangri-La, you've got two key developments, one of which is owned by Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy. Oh. Um, and they've got a wine called Ao Yun, uh, which is very, very good. And there's another wine, um, a local consortium have produced a, a label just called itself Shangri-La. And that's and the interesting thing is that that land was found by an Australian, Dr. Tony Jordan, who unfortunately is now the late Dr. Tony Jordan. It was initially developed by a very famous Australian winemaking consultant called Gary Baldwin and his business partner, Mark O'Callaghan, who works out of Hillsville in Victoria, is now, the, is now the consultant winemaker. So there's this amazing Australian connection in the middle of nowhere in Yunnan. And we're talking vineyards between... 2,200 and 2,600 metres above sea level. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ao Yun means above the clouds, flying above the clouds. So wow. it's so high. And the the vineyard sizes, it's all owned by local village people. The, the average vineyard size is probably around about an acre or, sorry, a hectare. Mm-hmm. So the, there are no economies of scale. It's in the middle of nowhere. What about your favourite Chinese red and Chinese white, Jeremy? Favourite Chinese white is, once again, big Australian connection. Um, Puno Ricard, um, whose wine division is run by Australians based out of Barossa Valley because Puno Ricard owns Jacobs Creek. Um, Puno Ricard owns um, an operation in Ningxia called Herlan Mountain, and they make a wine which is their reserve Chardonnay. And in my experience, it's regularly the best white wine in China. It's just a beautiful. It's uh, it's somewhere between um, a um, if it was Australian, would you say? I don't know. Maybe somewhere across, but say, but strangely between South Australia and, and Burgundy in France, mm. very very different profile. Uh, delicious, beautifully made, a, a glorious wine. And do you um, have a favourite? In terms red? of yeah, red what would be red? probably the one I mentioned earlier. That the um, the um, Jay Balan from uh, Hulan Chingshui, and they have a reserve label called Baby Feet, which is quite funny. <laughs> Their winemaker is a very, very uh, uh, capable young lady by the name of Jing Zhang. Um, she uh, had a daughter um, a few years back, and just after having the daughter, she got an imprint of her daughter's feet and put that on her reserve label wine. So <laughs> it's really quite cute. Yeah, so you got is, these little two red. Little two red feet on this otherwise um, plain label. And um, the wine is, um, I've I've really surprised a lot of Australians with it. I've just brought it to Australia and said, okay, guys, where do you think this comes from? Oh, that's Kurnawara. Mm. Oh, that's Mm. um, that's Tasmanian Cabernet from 
and somewhere like the Coal um, River Valley or something. But then I say China and their jaws just drop. Wow. How do they do that? Do you, do you see a time in the not too distant future when we're drinking, uh, you know, glasses of that whilst sitting down and tucking into some dumplings or a Peking duck at our local Chinese restaurant? Very much so. Um, all the big Chinese companies uh, have suddenly realised in the last two years that they have this enormous easy market to reach um, internationally. So all the big companies are, are looking at what do we need to do, what kind of wine do we need to make, or what kind of price point to take to countries like Australia where this where we've had this phenomenal integration with Chinese people for, you know, since the gold rush days, if you really want to go back. Mm -hmm. And so we've got this extraordinary connection. It's it's bigger than we actually thought, but the, narrowing it right down to something even smaller than what you've been discussing, we need to know what to drink with dumplings for Ben's sake, please. <laughs> just just to keep him in check here, Jeremy. Yeah. Well, well money's no object, Jeremy. As well, <laughs> well so. the, the, you know, um, the little <laughs> I know about dumplings through my travel is that, you know, each, each part of China is very, very proud with their dumplings. I mean, the Shanghainese will say theirs are the best. The Beijing will say oh, theirs are the so best. And then, yeah. then you go down to, um, you know, down uh, Hong Kong and, and the, you know, Pearl River Delta, Guangzhou, I think, oh, no, they're the best. But seriously, when you're, if, um, if you've, uh, you know, dumplings are generally quite delicate, um, they, they have a, there's a richness and a fattiness about them, whether they're seafood or whether they're pork or whatever. And so really it's talking about uh, a white wine, if you're going to go white, that's got freshness and acidity and brightness and luster, basically to counter the, uh, what, you know, to not overpower uh, the, the dumpling, but also to give it that freshness just to, you know, to make you want to go back and have another five yeah, or six. Exactly. And really re restore your appetite. So you can do that with... Um, you know, a dry, savoury white wine. And in Australia, we've got a great landscape of that. I mean, if um, Hunter Semyon, um, Rieslings from all over the place, Clare, Eden Valley, Great Southern Western Australia, Tasmania, um, work perfectly. Uh, and then you might move or you might move into a, uh, a Pinot Gris um, that's not too sweet. Sometimes with a dumpling, you'll put a sweet sauce. So in a Pinot Gris, might, with a little bit of sweetness, might work really, really well. Um, or if you wanted to go red wine, then go, uh, my choice would be Pinot Noir, um, but not too heavy. Yeah. So, Jeremy, more importantly then for us to learn more, for the listeners to learn more, where can they find you? I've um, oh, Thank you. Thanks for the, the, the thought. I've, uh, you can find me online in two places. I've got a website at jeremyoliver.com. But uh, recently I've started up being, and I've always wanted this title, editor-at-large of uh, sellerspace.com. And Sellerspace is a new online marketplace for wine. It's a bit like a, a specialised eBay for wine, if you like. And my role is to provide, you know, tech blogs, video content, blogs, opinion, and to basically try and uh, attract attention and help inform people of what's going on at the moment. So... Um, so either at sellerspace.com or jeremyolder.com is how people can, uh, can get hold of me online pretty easily. Thank you, because we can never know too much about wine no. or buy wine. No, it's one of those things you, you, you never, ever stop learning. I can promise you that. Mm -hmm. And you can never, ever stop drinking either, Jeremy. No, it's research and development. <laughs> it is. And it gets, <laughs> con and, and contributes to longevity, I hear. Well, that's what the Chinese think. 
So that honestly, well, the European paradox confirms what you've said is true. But I've heard so many excuses for China. Women saying, "Oh, it's good for my skin to have a glass a day," or "It really helps me relax just before I go to bed, so I have a glass of wine." I go, "That's fantastic." Yes, it is. We, <laughs> whatever. We're up to four hours a day. Yes, <laughs> four, four glasses a day here. Um, Jeremy, thank you. It's been amazing. It's been wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it. Look after yourselves. Cheers. Thank you. Oh, Julia, that was a great episode. Can't wait for the next one. I love these podcasts. And yeah, me too. Great fun. Listeners, we need your input. A couple of reasons. We just want you to rate us so that we can do the best job we can for you. And it also helps other listeners join us. Yeah, help other people find um, Taste Bud Traveller. And of course, subscribe for your weekly dose of travel goodness. Speak to you next week. <laughs>